and welcome to Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. In this episode, the Lady Justices will discuss the National Center for State Court Survey on public confidence in the courts. The judiciary can only exist with the trust and confidence of the people. Our Lady Justices delve into the importance of public confidence in the courts. They also detail how their respective courts work to improve confidence by managing trust and maintaining a culture that fosters integrity, transparency, and accountability for all. Finally, in the lightning round, they share their New Year's resolutions, how they spent their New Year's Eve, the latest TV show they've enjoyed, and the last book they read. That's coming up. And stay tuned for some exciting news about a special guest appearance in the next episode of Lady Justice, Women of the Court. Welcome back to Lady Justice. I am Bridget McCormick. The last time I appeared on this podcast, I was a justice on the Michigan Supreme Court. I am no longer a justice on the Supreme Court. I retired at the end of December, retired from the bench, not from work. I will uh, soon start a new job as the CEO and president of the American Arbitration Association. But I am delighted to be together again with my dear friends, Rhonda Wood from the Arkansas Supreme Court, and Beth Walker, now the Chief Justice of the West Virginia Supreme Court. Happy New Year, friends. Happy New Year, Bridget. Happy retirement. What what an exciting transition. Thank you. I'm so happy and I'm proud of both of you. So congrats to Beth, the new Chief Justice, and then Bridget, the new CEO. So, hey, you guys are inspiring to me. (laughs) Well, you're you're inspiring to me as well every day. So. We're going to talk today about a, a survey that the National Center for State Courts does every year to track public confidence in courts and in state courts in particular, of course. The 2022 survey results were released in late November, which is the typical time they release results every year. And we're going to discuss today a little bit about what we're what we learned from those results and what court leaders might consider to do. Now that now that we have those results, J- just by way of some background, the National Center works with a team every year to draft the survey questions. And the team is comprised of three chief justices from around the country and two court administrators. And they try and draw uh, a diverse group of court leaders when they are putting the team together to figure out what new questions to add. The survey has been given since 2012. And some of the questions are constant, and obviously there's good reason for that. You want to track the changing uh, ideas people have over over time. But they try, the National Center tries each year to also add a question or two uh, about something topical in the courts that year. And this year was no different. There were a, a couple of newer questions that I think produced some pretty interesting findings. And we're going to go through the specific findings in our discussion today. But the short story is that the public's confidence in courts remains higher than in the other branches of government. So the public has more confidence in their courts uh, than they do in the executive branch and the legislative branch. But um, their confidence level in courts is sliding it's also sliding in the other branches, but it's sliding a little more quickly in courts. On the other hand, public confidence data is broken down between state courts, federal courts, and the U.S. Supreme Court, and the slide in public confidence is smallest with respect to state courts. And state courts, as you know, is where we spend our time and where we think most of the good that courts can do happens. Um, So I think that's a little bit of good news And then drilling down, there is some more specific information about the public's views on whether and how state courts can lead in some of the crises, uh, in particular behavioral health crises facing our communities today. And in some ways, a lot of the things that the survey asks about intersect with topics we've talked about in this podcast before in different ways. And I hope we can recall some of that in our discussion. So let's start with the overall confidence levels the survey respondents reported. As I said, the good news is people continue to have more confidence in the courts than in the other branches. 
And while the public's confidence in courts is down from last year's data and down significantly more from when the National Center started collecting the data in 2012, as I said, the confidence level is down less for state courts than for federal courts or for the United States Supreme Court. So I'm curious to know if you all were surprised by this data um, and if you have any thoughts about what it means for, for you all who are leaders in your courts, in your states. Rhonda, what, what reactions do you have? So I was a political science major, so I'm really like geeky nerdy when it comes to surveys. And so I was not surprised. I'm going to pick on the U.S. Supreme Court a little bit. I was not surprised that the public's confidence um, in that court decreased and that it broke down by racial and ideological lines. Um, I think given, you know, the decisions we've seen that that is not unexpected. What was interesting to me was that, and I kind of dove into the data, so I'm going to probably lose some people here, but that comparing just from year last year to this year, the decline was 19% in the confidence of liberals and 15 decline percentage points by moderates in the U.S. Supreme Court. But there was only an increase in two percentage points by those identifying as conservatives. So you would think that if it was based on decisions, that if you saw these huge 15 and 9% decrease points, that you'd see then a 9, 10 swing by conservatives. So to me, that either means the decisions did not have an equal effect, positive effect on conservatives that changed their view of the Supreme Court as much as it had this massive negative effect on really a majority of the population. Or the other explanation from a political science could be that when I looked at it, the year before the public confidence with conservatives was at 73%. And so there's not really more that you go up because for public confidence, you know, you don't really go higher than, you know, in the 70s or the 80s, you don't ever get, you know, you're not going to get really 90% confidence rating. So that's why you only get a two percentage point. But I don't know. I mean, so it's just interesting to me that if you thought it was a case determinative, you know, one particular case or a couple, you didn't see the swing in conservatives. But there could be a couple of reasons for that. I was disappointed with the drop in state courts' public confidence. And Bridget, you said that this is the same time that they do the surveys every year, but it strikes me as this year was politically high. There was a lot of gerrymandering cases in state courts, abortion cases in state courts, ballot initiative challenges in state courts. So many of the highly politicized issues going on and a lot of that was hitting right before the November election. And this survey happened at the end of October that it, you know, to have honestly only the four or 5% drop is actually pretty good. <laughs> you know, given the timing of this year and what was going on. And when you compare it, you know, to the drops, we're st I mean, that we're still higher in confidence than most of the other branches. Well, then the other branches are for sure. So I don't know. Those are sort of my thoughts because I kind of went into the survey in the background and what else could be implicating it. So Beth, what do you think? <laughs> well, of course, we rely on you to geek out and dive into the details. And so I'll look at it a little, a little differently. And that is kind of the overall trend. Um, you know, it makes me wonder, why does it continue to fall? You can talk about an individual year and obviously, you know, news events that happen or all of that. But I think one of the things that's going on, and I'm not sure how you reverse it or start to address it, but I think that the, the sort of conflicts or clashes or whatever you want to call it between the judicial branch and the other two branches continue. And sometimes I think are elevated, whether you're talking about the cases like you were talking about, Rhonda, you know, gerrymandering cases, obviously that's a direct uh, interaction between the judicial branch and the legislative branch, or just the day-to-day -day called on to consider the constitutionality of particular legislation or making, you know, decisions based on the rule of law that the 
legislature might not agree with. And so I think so long as there's this sort of elevated conflict, and of course, that's the way our founders designed the government, there's supposed to be some tension between the branches. I guess, uh, you know, I, I think that the news coverage, the everything is more elevated of any conflict right now. I mean, I think, you know, we know, we know how social media works. We know that clicks are driven by negative news. And so I don't know how you deal with it other than taking a page and, you know, this is just sort of my, what would I do? What does it mean for us? Taking a page from um, Sandra Day O'Connor's playbook, which is education, education, education. And how do you explain what we do in state courts in a digital world? How do you you know, make people aware uh, of the work that we do, you know, again, I'm not really worried about increasing the approval rating. And again, 60% is not terrible, as Rhonda said. I mean, it's, you know, 40%, I think we would have a little bit of a five alarm fire, but 60%, but how do you, what do you do to keep the slide or slow the slide down? If it's going to be slow, if it's going to be continuing down, those are the kind of things I've been thinking about. What about you, Bridget? I, I so appreciate both of your comments, and they all, I think, uh, make a lot of sense. I have to say, I, I am always surprised in this survey that the public knows the difference between state courts and federal courts. You know, I, I honestly am a little bit suspicious of how informed respondents are when they answer these questions. I, I mean, if Beth succeeds in figuring out how to educate the world online I, uh, about what state courts do, this will help. But I'm afraid right now people don't necessarily know the difference between state courts and federal courts. And they therefore don't know a lot of what's going on in state courts to really address problems in communities. I mean, we've we've had many discussions over the course of this podcast about the different things state courts are doing to respond to hard problems. And it's considerable because we do so many more cases than federal courts. We see a lot more problems, frankly, than federal courts, problems that are really impacting our communities. And, and there really are some good news stories out there. Um, and it's it, it makes me want to make sure people know those good news stories. And I think we'll get back to some of that at the end of this survey when we talk about the responses on behavioral health. But I, I'm glad the National Center does it. I think it's something that court leaders definitely want to be aware of. And seeing the trend lines over time is important, um, even to the extent that it's hard to sort out what exactly they mean. But I assume you all, and I will too, continue to watch these findings each fall. The next question or the next sort of area the survey probed was about the concept of equal justice for all, which of course is the foundation upon which our branch of government is built. Unlike in the political branches, it does not matter in the court whether you are uh, wealthier or more. It should not, at least. That's the value. It should not matter what resources you bring to the table. That equal justice for all is an important foundational principle of the justice system. But the Data here, too, shows a growing concern about whether the system is providing equal justice, and the concern is starker among people of color. The responses are broken down in the survey by white respondents, Hispanic and Black, and Hispanic and Black respondents are significantly more concerned that the justice system is not delivering on its promise of equal justice for all. And I think there are probably lots of reasons for that. You all know that I think uh, and write and talk a lot about the sheer number of people who have to navigate civil justice problems without the help of lawyers or the help of even legal information. You know, we built this civil justice system for lawyers, by lawyers, at a time when everyone had lawyers and the rules and the norms and the, the whole structure of just the civil justice system assumes that people have lawyers. And when most don't, and right now most don't, it can leave people feeling pretty discouraged that the justice system does not work for them the way it works for somebody who, who has a lawyer. And I think that is one of the fundamental sort of important problems facing the justice system right now. And there's lots of work going on 
uh, around the country to sort of figure out what breakthrough solutions there might be, because we're probably not going to be able to lawyer our way out of that problem. So what are the other ways in which we can make sure people have the information to feel like they are part of the justice system, not that it's just something that happens to them. It's an issue that I'm continuing to work on. I'm, I have this little really fun part-time gig at the University of Pennsylvania Law School Future of the Profession Initiative, and we just launched an innovation lab where this is the main project we will be working on. Stay tuned for some more fun news on that. And the Michigan Supreme Court is it has its sleeves rolled up on this issue as well. There's incredible work being done there. What about in West Virginia, Beth? What is the West Virginia Supreme Court doing to make sure people understand and can achieve equal justice? Well, we are waiting for your innovation lab, I think, first of all, to yield some impressive solutions. So uh, I will be staying tuned uh, for more information about that because it's a really difficult issue. You know, as I said before, one of the, I talked a little bit about the tensions between legislatures and the judiciary. One of those tensions is budgetary. And so as legislatures look closer and closer at state judiciary budgets, it's hard because, and what we know is we probably just can't throw a bunch of money at this problem. You have to think about it really in everything we do. For example, West Virginia just completed its every eight year judicial workload study. And so we went through working with, of course, the National Center for State Courts on how many judges we need, how many judges, how many trial judges, family court judges, magistrates throughout, up and down. And the interesting thing is we figured out, well, we probably need a couple more judges or other officials in other places. But the one thing we learned in that is that in cases where lawyers do have to be involved, criminal cases, and our civil cases, our child abuse and neglect docket, which is enormous in West Virginia, there are not enough lawyers to do the work. And so, you know, in, in this is, I know you, the two of your, your states have these same issues. You have rural counties. And in many of our counties, you have, you know, one lawyer gets to be the prosecutor. One lawyer or two are the public defenders. And there might only be a dozen lawyers. Actually, that's probably a lot in some of our counties. And so how do you keep these cases moving and make people feel like their rights are being protected, that they're receiving due process, and that things are going timely when there are only so many lawyers to go around? And we you know, have been trying to figure out, and I appreciate what you said, Bridget, about we can't lawyer our way out of it. That's probably true particularly on the civil side of things. But in these areas where folks have the right to counsel, it is an issue. And trying to figure out how to either interest lawyers in these issues. And, you know, we talk about it all the time in our bar admissions now. And we encourage lawyers, when they think about public service, to think about these areas uh, because we're not really sure how to really manage this without at least some lawyer involvement. So, you know, in, in West Virginia, our access to justice issue revolves a lot around poverty uh, and addiction. And so we are, you know, I, I, I can't wait to get some answers. Maybe, maybe I can take a page from Arkansas, Rhonda. What are you all doing there? Well, I guess it goes back to, to me, it's all about education and getting out into the communities and educating them. And I think that probably goes from my experience on the working with juveniles um, and families, you know, on the bench um, from that experience. And, you know, Bridget talked about, we have all these resources that state courts have. And you think about from mental health treatments and just tremendous amount of resources that we can line up families and provide them services with, our trial courts have, and get families the help they need. But if the families don't trust the court system and or don't know that what the courts are there to help and they don't share and they don't actually, you know, aren't willing, they're sort of closed down because they don't trust the system and they're not going to share, you know, that there is a substance abuse problem going on in the family or there's 
uh, domestic violence going on in the family or whatever's going on, then they don't get the resources that are available. So to me, that's part of this sort of equal justice and access to all. And what I saw in part of my time on the bench, I remember seeing that we went like three years and there was never a rape case involving a juvenile in the Black community. But every single case was in the white community. And these were like families. So these were, I'm talking about family to family. So maybe older brother to younger sister. And so when these things were happening, the the family, um, you know, white family would turn to the courts and get help. And then that would allow the younger sibling to the victim get help and counseling and all the victim services we had available. But then the older sibling would actually get help and counseling and that through what we call family need of service cases. But I was shocked that like three years went by and there was never one in our minority communities. And I was convinced it's because the last thing they're ever going to do is go to the court, right? <laughs> There's a family problem. They were just dealing with it in the family. And so the victims were never getting any services and the abuser was never getting any services and could, you know, was never going to get any help. And so just those types of things that just, you know, would keep the cycle going. So I think it's just education and going out. And so I think with Arkansas, it's all about judges getting out into the schools and communities and talking to them and telling them, here's the court, here's what we do. If the current generation and the youth only see judges on YouTube <laughs> and TV, and they're the ones sentencing them and being harsh, and that's their view of the justice system, then, then we're going to fail. And these public confidences are always going to be low and keep sliding. But if they go out and they meet them one-on-one -on -one and in the community, it changes, I think, instantaneously. So that person-to-person -person contact. So that's my big, what we're trying to do in Arkansas. And I think what we have to do. That's really interesting. I, I mean, I know you are extremely active in getting out into your community and not just to lawyer groups. I know you're, you, you, that's been, a, um, and Beth, you too, the two of you have been amazing about that. And I do think that's like something that I wish all judges did. There's so many judges, especially trial judges that are really presiding over dockets that really are connecting people to services, not just delivering consequences, right? I mean, obviously consequences is part of it, but, but you, you do want those stories told and telling them yourself is kind of the most direct way to do that. Another topic the survey asked about and has since 2014 is the public's comfort level with remote court hearings. And we have talked about this topic before on the podcast, the rapid changes that courts went through during the pandemic caused all judges uh, everywhere to get comfortable with remote hearings. And as a result, we learned a lot from it. And that, that's been a bonus, right? We, didn't, we wouldn't have had such a rapid adoption of that technology without an emergency. And sometimes you need an emergency to learn, learn lessons that would have otherwise take a long time. And I think the three of us have been pretty clear about our support for the transparency that comes with streaming our own court's hearings. That's something that we share. And it's been an interesting process to see what has happened in courts with respect to re remote hearings now that the emergency phase of the pandemic is over. I never know whether I can say the pandemic's over or not. I give, I give up on figuring that out. But, but I think it's fair to say that most courts can and do many hearings in person. And the question is kind of, what they're doing in person and why and when. But the public's confidence with appearing at their remote hearings, uh, appearing at court hearings on remote platforms is high. It's especially high for those under 50. That's not a surprise. And it's the confidence, I'm sorry, the comfort level has really grown every year. And in 2022, that's no different. Uh, we see 59% saying they're comfortable appearing remotely at a court hearing. And, and for those under 50, that number is 67%, which raises an interesting set of questions for court leaders like you two. What is it that state Supreme Courts that kind of set the rules and the norms for the trial courts throughout the state, which is where most people go to court hearings. Uh, most people don't have hearings in the state Supreme Courts, very few. 
but, but many people have hearings in their local courts. And so I'm interested to know where you all are on this. Are, what's happening in your trial courts? And have you and your colleagues set any rules about remote hearings going forward now that there's no longer an emergency? I think uh, you might know that in, in Michigan, we did go through a, a rulemaking process on this subject. We took lots of feedback from the public. We did surveys. We looked at a couple of other states that had enacted rules to govern which hearings should be presumptively remote and which shouldn't. And we passed a set of rules late last summer that govern the hearings in our trial courts. For the most part, that means the trial judges should abide by those rules. That doesn't always happen, but it's at least uh, an attempt to make to make sure that there is some uniformity and the public knows what to expect when they have a particular type of hearing. What's happening in Arkansas? Is there a, is there a rule you all are considering? Do you, do you have a sense of what trial courts are doing? How are you handling remote hearings at this point? Rhonda. So we, we did the same thing. We sort of sent it out to our um, rules committee and they came back and we passed rule 88. It's a new rule to our rules of civil practice. And it's concerning virtual and then blended hearings. And it goes through what the trial court has to consider, the motion, if attorneys want to make a motion for it to be blended or virtual. And then it also has a requirement that if the judge moves it suddenly to virtual, they have to post a notice on the courtroom door that it's virtual and how to either join the public can join the virtual hearing or con- how they can contact the you know case coordinator and get information to join the virtual meeting so that the public can still be there and attend and how to sort of create the record and um, that sort of thing. So we have a new rule 88 in that regard. So what about you, Beth? Well, we are kind of two things. One, in terms of the rules, we've got a big revision to the overall rules of civil procedure pending, and that includes some of this. But the really interesting experiment that I don't know how it's going to turn out because it just started that I want to tell you about is what we did with our Intermediate Court of Appeals. Of course, our, as you all know, our Intermediate Court is brand new, just opened up, started July 1 of last year. And its jurisdiction includes domestic cases. And the thing that we thought about with thinking about folks having their domestic cases appealing instead of now to the trial courts, they used to go from family court to trial court. Now they go from family court to intermediate court. Intermediate court are three judges sitting statewide. And we worried about folks in domestic cases who are largely self-represented in many cases, having really the ability to participate by coming to Charleston, which is five hours away from some parts of our state, for these hearings in front of the intermediate courts. So we did uh, some looking and some measuring of miles and Google Maps and all of the things. We, f- we found five places across the state where someone could then come be at and only be less than 90 minutes from their home. And in those places, we set up a virtual courtroom. And so it is, there's a council table and a in a big screen so that they can see the intermediate court judges. And now lawyers or self-represented litigants can go to one of those remote locations and appear for arguments before the intermediate court. They just had their first one last week. So it is brand new because one of the reasons we were, one of the hurdles for remote hearings, of course, is connectivity. You know, do you have sufficient internet service to even be able to participate in a remote hearing. And by creating these sites that we know they're directly, they're wired right into the intermediate court, we don't, folks can appear there and not have to worry whether, obviously the dog is barking, the children are yelling, but also whether they're going to cut out uh, because their internet's not very good. So we are, um, that's just kind of a one example of trying to innovate with this. We're not Personally, I think it's kind of a test run to see whether we might do something like this for the Supreme Court, but it's pretty exciting and it's a stay tuned situation. Uh, Anything else from Michigan, Bridget? 
I think there will be. I mean, the, the Michigan rules are pretty comprehensive. And the idea was this was the set of rules that made sense given the inputs we had at the time. But we all, I think at that, uh, we it's not me anymore. So we as they all, you know, we all thought at the time, I we expect to be tweaking these as we go along, right? As we get more information and we get more data. Um, one of the things that we've learned from places around the country where there is data collected on remote hearings is that default rates in cases where people represent themselves, like eviction cases and debt collection cases, drop significantly when people have uh, a remote option, which, you know, makes sense because people have jobs or childcare issues or transportation issues. And while internet can be a problem for many and smartphones are expensive, they're not as expensive as a car is. And in Michigan, we don't have great public transportation. So if you're going to get to court, you, you need a ride. So that data is important data that the Michigan Supreme Court is going to continue to watch and make sure that they're taking note of it. Because if it brings more people to show up at their court hearings, that's ultimately a good thing. They'll, they'll want to make sure that that continues to be a, a possibility. Another thing that the survey asks about is a, accountability, whether the current system of justice holds judges accountable. And it asks about various accountability mechanisms, appeals, jury trials, written opinions. And, and what, what they mean by that is that the obligation of, of, a, of a judge or a court to issue an opinion that explains its reasoning. Um, and then various codes of conduct. There are, of course, uh, codes of conduct that govern judges. Um, and then finally, um, openness, the, the access to courts that we were just talking about, the transparency, that's pretty exciting, I think, uh, uh, about, about your pilot in West Virginia, or not pilot, but a, but a, a new, new program in West Virginia, um, and access to court records, which can be um, complicated in many states, especially states that don't have a unified case management system. Um, open records uh, is can, can be quite tricky when you have different case management systems throughout the state. Um, this finding actually, the, 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 the finding is that the, the public is pretty, um, pretty confident that these current methods do a good job holding judges accountable. And I, I was a little bit surprised by that because of the declining overall confidence in courts. I sort of expected to see um, some skepticism about the current accountability methods. So it, it surprised me a little bit and I'm not sure I have a, a, a reason to explain it. I don't know, um, Beth, do you have any thoughts about, about why, why the public thinks uh, the current system does a good job here? So um, this is not at all a knock in any way on the National Center, but part of me is a little skeptical of the average um, sort of survey respondents ability, ability to tease out this issue. I mean, the, the, the positive response is roughly the same as the um, sort of confidence. And I, I'm at, I, I, you know, obviously I don't know how they I asked the question if they framed it, if they offered some explanations along the lines that you um, mentioned. I mean, you know, how do folks know? You know, we think about, of course, we're lawyers and judges, and we immediately think about, well, you know, the controversy in the federal courts about judges not making disclosures. And, uh, and I'm just not sure how much of that is filtered down to um, you know, the average survey respondent. And I think, you know. And I don't, I don't, um, you know, disregard it. I just say I think it's all part of the public confidence package. Um, I think we do. Yeah, I'm glad that they don't see us lacking in this area. Pleasantly surprised, but I think it's all still part of the bigger, bigger picture of you know, running the courts in a way that makes folks confident that they're going to get a fair shake that their case is going to be processed and that they have access. So I guess that's a little cynical. I don't mean to be, but Rhonda, what do you think? Yeah. So I, I sort of agree. I, I look, you know, I went kind of into the details of what the questions were and these are lengthy questions. When I, I mean, looked at them, I mean, 
I don't know. You know, I guess when I've looked at surveys, they always say like, try to keep it your question less than 10 words or, you know, I mean, very short. These are pretty lengthy. The only thing is, I mean, I guess selfishly, I could say the other one talked about state courts as a whole, and these were about the accountability of judges. So maybe judges have a higher rating than state courts as a whole, which could mean the whole system. But that's pretty self-interested way to interpret the result. So I I don't know. Um, and, and even the way they broke it down, it was that courts are open to the public and court records can be accessed. That had a lower, like very effective rating than judges cases being appealed. And I would think that would be the total opposite. I would think openness of courts and records and public access would be higher than cases being appealed. I don't even know if people understand what the appeals mean. So I don't know. I, this this whole one, unexplainable. Bridget, maybe you have a, if you've come up with a solution. <laughs> or an no, answer. I was kind of, kind of counting on you two. So we failed. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I think you both might be right. It, you know, I, I obviously had a little bit of skepticism about whether the respondents could tell the difference between state and federal courts, but this, this one feels even more in the weeds. So I don't know what to think about it. But the, the last question I think is actually pretty interesting. And this is one of the, this was a, a new question this year, I, I think I said at the top of the episode, each year the team tries to ask some questions that are especially relevant to current conditions that courts are facing. And this year, the, the survey asked people about the role courts can and should play in addressing behavioral health crises. This is a topic we've talked about before. We devoted an entire episode to problem-solving courts and another to mental health more generally in the role um, our courts can play as a positive force. And it's one uh, I think we've all been passionate about as well. And the survey findings are pretty fascinating on this topic, or they were to me at least. The public is strongly in favor of courts taking the lead on addressing the behavioral health crises in their communities in lots of different ways. They, they support helping people find treatment options, that courts should help people find treatment options, diverting uh, low-level offenders who are in court because of a behavioral health crisis and specialized court dockets, problem-solving courts. I think this is a really bright spot in these survey results because it seems to me to be a really direct route for courts to be responsive to the public's concerns and to therefore grow confidence. I, I actually, I feel like this takes me full circle back to this, the first finding there's some real good news here. And I, I have to say, I kind of agree with the public. Um, the courts just happen to see the downstream effects of a lot of other problems in our communities. And judges have some authority over somebody who lands on their docket. And therefore, they have some sticks and also some carrots to be able to encourage people to find their way to the kind of treatment that will help them not repeat the whatever it was that got them to court in the first place. And with the public's support for that, that feels to me to be a really good news story in all of these survey results. And I, I know uh, when we talked about problem solving courts, that's something all of our states are involved in. And I think I said during that episode, it's one of the topics that there is just enormous bipartisan support in our legislature. The legislature just really, really appreciates the work that problem-solving courts are doing and likes to, to support them. And so I see that as only a growing trend. How about in Arkansas? Rhonda, is there any, any new news on the way your courts are responding to behavioral health issues? I think it's tied to the survey. So I think out of this survey, there was a push, and probably through the chief justice group, um, but our Supreme Court did establish the Behavioral Health Commission this fall, and I'm part of that commission. So the Chief Justice asked me to serve on it, and we did receive a grant. And so we're going to also work. There's a legislative working group um, on behavioral health. So we're going to we're just starting from the ground of looking at any policy, any civil rules, every sort of part in the place in the court system where you can identify someone with behavioral health, mental health issues in all of our different courts, you know, whether that's juvenile, family, criminal, and see if there's anywhere that we can make changes and improve the, the process and the contact. 
So uh, we're just in the very beginning, early, early stages. Beth, what about you guys? Well, hats off to you for serving on that commission to the extent you had a choice, but if you did, <laughs> Alex, um, uh, you, I'm uh, one of the people that never say no. Uh, I think I've that was a topic no. of another no. podcast too. Um, so, uh, but no. you know, it's really where, where this is, you know, kind of rubber meeting the road right now in West Virginia is, you know, we have, as we've talked about on other podcasts and you all have in your States, you know, a great uh, and expanding network of treatment courts, problem-solving courts in West Virginia in particular. We have expanded over the last year, year and a half, um, our family treatment courts, which are active in the area of child abuse and neglect proceedings. And so all of that is positive and all of that is well-received by the legislature. They are very good at, you know, thinking about supporting all of it, these treatment courts. The challenge we have in West Virginia right now is that the Department of Health and Human Resources, which is sort of the clearinghouse for services in these courts and for helping, you know, a lot of these folks at the poverty level, below the poverty level, all of it with behavioral health issues is in a bit of a crisis. And so it's, you know, it's very difficult to find people to hire to do some of this work, setting aside whose fault it is and whether it was this or that. It's sort of front and center on the, on our legislature's agenda. They just convened this week or last week, I should say. So they are at the very beginning of the legislative session. And we find ourselves in the courts as a sort of resource provider for the legislature. You know, we'll let you know what we know about how DHHR works and how you all can address this. But we really need folks who are, you know, supporting these courts and acquainted with these behavioral health issues, which in, you know, for us, and I'm sure in your states too, the leading behavioral health issue is addiction and the co-occurring, you know, mental health conditions that go along with addiction. And so, you know, we are trying to use the knowledge we have from our treatment courts to help solve this problem, which hopefully then will enhance the services that are available available for people. Because bottom line, we have to get help for people. And there's different ways, different access points for quote help. And it's sort of um, you know, when, when you, one of one of them shuts down or is having trouble, that sort of affects the whole scheme of things. So we're fingers crossed that we can get through this little DHHR situation and move forward to help some more people. Yeah, that, that makes it more complicated for sure. There's one other little bright spot of news in this area of your worlds, which is the National Association of Drug Court Professionals, Treatment Court Professionals, I should say, that I, I'm still on the board of received record funding from Congress this year. And they are the primary federal sort of conduit funder for states for treatment courts. And they received record funding from Congress. So that's that's some good news coming your way for treatment courts uh, in, in the states around the country. Well, that was a fun conversation. I, I'm always really interested in this survey and will continue to be, and I know you will as well, uh, as court leaders always looking to figure out how to make sure that your courts are serving the public as best as possible. It's good to have information about what the public thinks when, you, when you're working on that. And this brings us to our lightning round. I want to confess that I think my lightning round questions are a little basic. That's what my, I think that's what my adult kids would call them. But sometimes you want to get back to the basics and find out what your friends are up to. So I apologize if you think they're boring. I can't wait to find out what the answers are. We will go um, Rhonda, Beth, and then me. And we'll start with, did you have a New Year's resolution? And if so, what was it? Rhonda. So no, but like this year, I last year I listened to you and both of you, and then I stole one. So I'm waiting to find out what I can steal again this year. <laughs> Beth? Outstanding. So I have a word of the year, which then forms my resolution. My word of the year is gratitude. And my resolution is to write a thank you note, preferably in writing, but digitally, if I don't have an address, one per day. That's Awesome. I love wow. that. Um, so far, I, so good. <laughs> that's amazing. I, my, my resolution was to try and rediscover weekends. I feel like I got in really bad habits over the last 10 years. And 
lot of weekends is the time to catch up on work that didn't get done on weekdays. And I would rather go for a walk with my husband. And I want to try and do that on weekends going forward. So um, you could do both of those, Rhonda. Thank you notes and walks with your husband. So. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I those are, I don't know that I could do one a day, but Beth, but, um, but maybe I was thinking once a week. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the walks too. So all right, next question. How did you spend New Year's Eve, Rhonda? We were boring. Michael cooked steaks and we just watched a movie and had an early night, but it was perfect for us. Beth? So we were pretty low-key, but not as low-key. We actually went over and joined some friends for a dinner that was pretty casual and didn't last until midnight. So I have to admit, I didn't ring in the official new year, but spending that with friends was pretty fun. So that's what we did. How about you, Bridget? I was on the Rhonda Michael plan. My husband <laughs> and I stayed in, had some champagne and dinner together and were in bed before midnight. So yes. welcome to the new year in the morning. Uh, sign of the times, <laughs> I guess. How about the latest TV show you've watched or maybe even binge watched, Rhonda? So we have been watching all the Yellowstone. And so now we're on the, we just watched the 1923, which is like the pre Yellowstone. My husband has dragged me into it and, but it's been, it's been good. So Helen Mirren and Harrison Ford are in the 1923 and you can't go wrong with those two. Beth? So I continue to be a serial television watching Luddite and crickets, crickets, none, <laughs> zero. At consistent. At least you're consistent. I, you know? uh, we, I have watched some golf, but that's, yeah. that's it. <laughs> well, that's on TV. So that, I guess it's not a show, but at least it's on TV. Yeah. We binge watched Bad Sisters, which is this Irish procedural that it's about five sisters, one of whom is married to not the greatest guy. And the other four spend 14 episodes. I don't know if it's 14, 12, trying to figure out how to kill him. And it was hilarious. So we actually in, enjoyed that binge watching. How about the last book you read, Rhonda? I know that's going to be like whatever you read this morning, but. No, <laughs> no, um, stop it. No, um, so I just, I waited. That's true. The, the, the truth hurts. It's, yeah. I know. So I waited till Christmas. These are, this is an old series, but I wanted to wait till I could like read them straight through without a break. And I read the Wolf Hall trilogy, which has been out a while, but it's about, you know, Henry and all of King Henry and, and all of his wives, his um, six wives, but it's from the Thomas Cromwell's perspective. So it's his view. Sorry. It was really fascinating. They're really thick reads, but I wanted to do it or I could read them all. So I had to wait till I had like two days to just hit the trilogy. So, well, that, <laughs> then that leads me to ask, was it like an original edition of the book or because you are such Good a collector? Yeah. No, um, but Michael did get me these for Christmas because he knew that I'd wanted them and, um, but they're pretty nice, but yeah. So I just, that was it. So mine was a little lighter fare, but it's relating to something I did last week, which, so I read Finding Ultra by Rich Roll, and that is uh, about him becoming an ultra marathon athlete person. Mm -hmm. But um, as you all know, I walked a marathon a week ago and I was looking for a little inspiration. Now that was probably too much inspiration, but <laughs> I was just looking for something in the high performance, positive approach uh, world. So I read Finding Ultra right before floor I walked 26.2 miles at Disney World successfully yeah that's, that's amazing. amazing congratulations by the yeah. way that thank is you so incredible that probably should have been how we started the episode Chief Justice Schmief Justice you just did a marathon man that's amazing yeah it's like I'm Chief Justice by day marathoner by <laughs> night right exactly <laughs> well was thank there, you friends was there something from Rich Roll's book that actually did that, that you sort of like took with you in the when you did the marathon I think it's just, I think it's just the attitude. It's all mental. I yeah. mean, it, you know, so much of sports is the mental part and that's what you yeah. just have to keep in mind. If you do the training that you're supposed to do, all that's left is just show up and let your brain not get in the way more or less. And so that's kind of 
one thing I took from it. He also has a really good podcast. It's a lot though. The episodes are super long. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not necessarily going to recommend it, but it, it is interesting. Well, I have been like sort of going back and forth between reading like business books um, as mm-hmm. I am trying to um, be thoughtful about leading a new organization and books about grief. You all know that my dad died in August and I find myself having a little bit more, uh, maybe everyone has trouble with it. It's the first parent I've lost and it's been, um, it's been a lot. And so I read this, I read The Beauty of What Remains last week, which is written by a rabbi in LA about his, he's a rabbi. So he's, he's helped many people um, when they've lost loved ones throughout his career. And then when he loses his own dad, you know, that how complicated it was, even so, you know, even as somebody who's sort of in the helping people with grief business, had his own challenges. And uh, it's a really beautiful book. I recommend it to anybody who is interested in thinking about about grief and, and what to make of it. So I hope that wasn't a bummer way to end the episode, but it was actually- Not at all. No, we, and we certainly love that you're willing to share that because you are not the only person who experiences that kind of challenge, especially over the holidays. I can't imagine it was probably really hard. So hearts go out to you and thanks for right. uh, sharing sharing a little hope for, for folks too. Yeah, I recommend it. I really do. Well, as always, it is wonderful to see you too. I miss you. And it is uh, a great way to start my week to get to, to wake up to you two on Monday morning. <laughs> same, <laughs> same likewise, dear friend. Likewise. Um, and we can't wait to hear um, in future podcasts about your your new position and all the exciting things that you're doing and uh, and how it impacts courts. Yeah, I hope I'll have lots of good news or at least good ideas to talk about. So yeah. uh, we're counting on you for it and uh, we, we're, we're cheering for you. That's right. Thank you very right. much. <laughs> well, that concludes this episode of Lady Justice. Thank you all for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Lady Justice, Women of the Court the only podcast with one retired and two sitting state Supreme Court justices. To learn more about this podcast, access past episodes, or find links to our social media, visit ladyjusticepod.com. You can also record a voice message with questions or comment. Don't forget to subscribe and share our show with a friend of the genre. Stay tuned for a special guest appearance in our next episode from the Director of Liberty and Law Center, Assistant Law Professor with the Anthony Scalia Law School at George Mason University, Joanne Koo. Remember, the opinions expressed on the program are the justices alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective courts. Until next time.